You're listening to Deep Pockets by Investa, a podcast where we feature some of the best traders and business people in the industry to help you grow your finances and pursue your passion. Being being fundamentally grounded allows you to ride out the troughs of uh, of stock price movements. Make sure that the risk that you're taking for that with that capital is is appropriate relative to your time horizon. What's up, Maka Investa? Welcome back to another episode Dito sa Deep Pockets. And today, we're actually joined by two special guests from Atram. So we're here today with Sir Miguel and Sir L. So mga boss, um, good afternoon. Thank you so much for your time, uh, for being here sa podcast natin. So, maybe before I, I go through all of the questions, um, for the audience, baka di pa kayo kailangan, mm-hmm. could you guys, um, give a quick introduction about yourself? Maybe what Atram is all about also. Sure. Um, I guess, uh, before we, well, uh, my name is Miguel Leboro. I'm the head of fixed income for Atram Trust Corp. Um, and L, introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I, I'm L. I'm the head of equities research in Atram. Um, so I guess to Paul's point, um, I hope you've heard of us, but in case you haven't, we were for Atram Trust Corp. Uh, Atram is a, uh, the largest independent asset management, uh, country in the Philippines. And right now, we're doing our, doing our best to kind of reach everyone as efficiently as we can through this uh, pandemic, right? Yeah, right. So maybe before we um, dive into no, the funds ni Atra and more on that topic, because really a lot of our audience um, are mostly retail traders who trade their own accounts. So I think this is an interesting topic as well to better educate the investor community about um, investing in funds. Is, for example, if they don't have the time to to you know, balancing personal trading, right? So maybe before yeah. we go into that, I can ask you guys, um, how and when did you begin some markets or how and when did you guys uh, begin investing yourselves? Well, sure. Um, I think my very first investment was um, during my first job right out of college. Uh, I've I've dabbled in stocks, but not like formally, not really putting uh, money myself. Um, back in college, just learning about it, how it works, mga, mga dummy portfolios, just just shadow portfolios, but um, the the very first money that I put in the market was right out of college. I think that was way back in 2014, and it's not even it's not even that far back. It's not even a decade old. And I think my very first positions then I've already exited. Um, they were they were uh, very poorly researched. They were just like word of mouth and all of that. So we we all start somewhere, right? And uh, I think. I think uh, my friend just told me uh, uh, the best way to start is really just to start. Yeah, um, for myself, kind of similar to L. I'm older though, so unfortunately it was before 2014. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really know anything about the equity market except the I mean, yeah, typical kind of uh, low low research retail trading shaken out. Um, I, I just heard that the market was going up. I didn't really know anything except, uh, oh, why don't you open like an online brokerage account? Took some recommendations from friends. Lost some money. Uh, fortunately, I was just starting to work then, so I hadn't really invested much. But that 
that did kind of like I said give me the impetus to you know really study and really realize that I have to know what I'm doing when I invest. Otherwise, stuff doesn't just go up all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, just curious, what were you guys doing before you before you got involved in the markets? Um, I think, uh, well, my very first job out of college was for an actuarial consulting firm. Uh, I don't know if I can name the firm, but let's just leave it at that. It's the natural progression because I majored in mathematics back in college. So it's sort of like the natural progression from those kinds of graduates. So I don't really, I didn't really have the, the traditional finance background that's kind of required or common in this, in this sector. Um, I guess to Elle's point, mine was the more, I guess, traditional background. Uh, I, I graduated economics. Uh, I ended up in a management training program for one of the mid-sized local banks. And then straight from there, I actually just ended up in markets. Uh, I was lucky enough to be placed in a group that I actually was interested in because in management training programs, at the end of it, you don't really know where you're going to get placed, right? Uh, but I got into treasury, so financial markets, um, specifically fixed income, peso bonds, and kind of a natural progression from there, from treasury into the trust and asset management side, still focusing on, on bonds. Got it. So when you guys were starting out, um, did, were you more on, were you more like a lone wolf? You learned the craft by yourself or did you have any, was there any, anyone mentoring you or guiding you throughout the process? Um, like my formal education about the markets, uh, I sort of have to, uh, learn by myself, although, I also did uh, um, just enter formally entered like the industry um, with my employer prior to Atram, and I guess uh, who said this? My mentor was my boss that time. Um, she was really she was really patient with somebody as 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 new as me <laughs> as I was before. Um, and but you know you, everything that you have to learn on the job, you also have kind of have to use on the job. And any, anything above that, anything extra, you have to learn on your own. So I signed on on uh, on a couple of programs, the CFA. That's when I started um, taking the CFA, studying for the CFA, and um, some other some other programs here and there online, whatever I can find. Yeah, for me, um, definitely. Uh, what else said? You try to learn stuff on the job. You definitely. The expectation that, oh, college, whatever you're learning in your course is going <laughs> to yeah. prepare you for what you're actually going to have to do at work. Yeah. And if you are in college right now, it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you, you will pretty much pick up whatever you need to do on the job because everything that you do is extremely specific and you can't mm. really teach it in college. A lot of stuff. Uh, you'll know in the background, like macroeconomics, stuff like that. You'll need that stuff. But on the specific tasks, then definitely, no, you, you're starting pretty much from base knowledge and scratch. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely had was lucky enough to have good people guiding me. Uh, back after the empty program when I was uh, trading in the bank, uh, my, my boss at the time, uh, you know, he could have just made me a, an input monkey, you know what I mean? Just, okay, just input my trades, right, not teach me anything. But he kind of gave me the freedom and the flexibility to to kind of make moves for myself. Uh, and when I moved over to Atram, um, I, I I received like a very deep level of mentorship over the last like seven years uh, from my then boss and who is now both my and Elle's boss. Uh, yeah. the president. <laughs> He's the president of the firm now. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, he's really the one that I guess mentored me throughout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alright, great. So, Sir Miguel, Tangnam Sir, you're the head of fixed income uh, for Atram. And Sir L, you're the head of equities research for Atram. So, could you guys um, describe what's it like uh, being in your role? I kind of got a glimpse of Sir Miguel's because we have, when we were shoot, before shooting the interview, we actually, you know, I think I mentioned in the start, but Sir Miguel is actually one of our speakers for the Investor Summit. So, we actually yes. uh, talked a while ago. This podcast is going to come out prior to the event. So, yeah, could you guys um, share? What's it like being in your role the day to day? Okay, I guess I'll go first. Um, equity research is um, Atram's philosophy. Investing philosophy basically is very uh, um, deeply rooted in fundamentals, and that's what equities research um, does. It's really going deep into the trenches with the companies, so meeting with them, going to their sites before the pandemic, before this entire pandemic thing. Um, keeping in touch with key people inside inside the company and even um, fact-checking everything uh, people in the company says with, like, secondary resources, um, whether it's their suppliers or some of their consumers or their regulators, and, like, looking to financials and finally val- uh, valuing the companies forecasting their, forecasting their um, financials. So it's really all those uh, very Excel-based jobs and uh, I guess uh, at the end of it all, you come up with a recommendation, whether to, to buy, sell, hold a certain stock. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you guys a really good idea of, of what it is on the research side. Um, for fixed income, um, I'll talk about it more like broadly, right? Uh, definitely in the fixed income side, we also have like the, the credit research, which well, I'll explain very well what they do, but on the credit side instead of on the on the equity side. Um, and what we do on the portfolio management uh, or investment side is really we take those ideas, we take the research, and we we put it into the portfolio. We we use that as a basis for the decision making process to see which positions need to be put in, uh, what makes sense given not just your views on specific companies, but in the case of fixed income, where you're looking at uh, essentially government debt, government risk, uh, how do yields or interest rates, uh, how are they expected to move over the short term, over the medium term, over the long term? What type of risks uh, do you want to be taking? Where the best potential gains are? Because I think there's a misconception about fixed income on the whole that it's super safe and like uh, you because you know that it has a maturity. You can yes. just buy it and hold it to maturity and then nothing's going to happen. And that's true. If you buy a bond and hold it to maturity, then you don't actually need to care about uh, what it does throughout the period, right? Because the moment the cash matures, you get all your principal back and whatever the interest rate or coupon was. But if there's even any risk that you may need that cash before the bond matures, then you are subject to the market. So... So that's a myth where you have no risk if you're invested in fixed income because the moment you there's a chance that you need to get that money back before it matures, you need to sell it wherever the market is, right? So there is still a very active management portion determining which securities to buy, what will be in, in the money before maturity, and all those types of things. Got it. So for my next question, maybe we can... Um, now go into talk about you know the, the funds. I mean, what are the advantages of investing in a fund? Because um, I feel like when a lot of people start out, they directly go into uh, 
Okay, I'm 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 a I'm a manager. I know my own portfolio, ganyan, ganyan, But they don't see that. Um, is a fit for them, or maybe hindi kaya ng oras because they have a full-time job or something. Could you guys share with us what are the advantages of um, investing in a fund uh, rather than handling it yourself? Uh, maybe maybe I'll first. <laughs> maybe I'll talk about the broad, uh, more general advantages first, and then El can step in after with some more uh, specificity, especially related to, I guess, the fundamental skill set or research required in making investments. Um, the first advantage is really the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the um, time, right? If you have money to invest, it typically implies that you have a job or some form of income, which means you're working, you're doing something else. And uh, if you don't want to split your focus, then the most convenient way to be able to invest and try and beat inflation and, and, and that is to seek out a professional, professionally managed fund. So that's the first one, right? The time and the need to not split focus. Next is the value of really the convenience for liquidity. Um, it can be kind of a pain in the ass to buy all these securities and monitor all the time what you're doing with them. And uh, and if you're in a professionally managed fund, you at least know that there's somebody doing that for you, right? Um, there is liquidity, right? Um, depending on how many securities you're buying, I don't know. Um, you could have very high concentration or, or not. But when you need the cash, you always have to make sure that whatever you bought was kind of liquid enough uh, for you to be able to sell so that you can generate that, that liquidity, right? But in a fund, because by virtue of the fund manager managing it, and in fact having typically a cash buffer, uh, you, you never have to worry about that. And the final one I'll talk about, I guess, is diversification. Because... If you say that you're holding, let's say, five stocks and you've got 20% in each stock, I don't know, El, does that sound really diversified? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true, that's true. I, yeah, like as, uh, as Miguel said, um, I think especially in, in, in equities where, uh, for example, a single uh, globe stock would cost you 2800 and your board lot, uh, your board lot, board lot is like 10 Right for for a retail person, you don't really you can't you don't really have that much uh, um, allocation in your portfolio to shell out in a single name. If you're just a student starting out with five thousand, ten thousand, you can't really leverage that into a diversified portfolio. That's when that's when you buy a buy a fund, right? So you have you you immediately get diversification and exposure to a lot of names. And I think um, more than buying the fund, you're buying the systems in place and the framework in place, right? Um, there's about at least 200 names in in um, the stock market. Uh, given not all of them are liquid, say you stick to the top 30, the the, the 30 in in the PSE, right? Do you have do you have the time? Do you have the know-how to to study all 30, right? Even just the time. So it's really you're also buying the the framework in place, the research framework in place. Um, I can speak um, from my position as uh, the head of equities research that a lot of time goes into researching a company, especially if you're if you um, you tend to just buy and hold. You don't really have the time to 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 do technicals to do day trading, um, and, and so you want to be sure that the company is in good financial footing. The the management is um, uh, the the management has a has a very defined strategy. A well-defined strategy. Are they meeting their targets? Every all of those already 
comes when you buy uh, buy a fund. Right. Oh, super interesting. Um, so ngayon, let's say I'm someone who, let's say I'm a student, right? And um, I, I relate to your point. I don't have that much money to invest in all different in all different areas. And what are what are some of the things I need to consider first? Or some things I need to be knowledgeable on to know what the right fund is for me. There's really just three main questions you need to answer first before anything else. One, what's my investment objective? So, I mean, uh, are you planning for a for retirement as early as now? Are you planning for a short trip? Well, maybe not in this environment. Are you planning to get, uh, you know, like what's your investment objective? And then that will help you define the other two questions. What's your investment time horizon, right? Uh, can you only invest over the next three months because it's your girlfriend's birthday and you need the cash by that time because you got to buy her a gift, right? Is it going into your college fund or something so you can you can afford to wait for a few years? Um, and finally, what's my investment risk tolerance, right? Because uh, everybody wants the the holy trinity, the impossible trinity, the like yeah, I want high liquidity, I want high stability, and I want High returns. High returns. <laughs> but, you know, more often than not, um, in order to generate those higher returns, you're going to have to take more and more risk, which which means less on the stability side, right? So you need to decide what's important or most important to you because if you're looking for, like, big gains, then you can't do that by sitting in time deposit where it's safe. But if you are risk-averse and you absolutely cannot risk losing anything, then how are you going to make a play on the equity or even the fixed rental markets? So those three questions you got to answer first. Got it. So what do you guys think are, you know, the common misconceptions, right, the public or people have when it comes to investing in a fund? Um, I think, uh, well, at least speaking from my experience, um, that it's exclusive to just a handful of people in the industry. You know, I think uh, that's that's why it's very important, and Atram is also pushing for financial literacy. Um, that uh, it can be done by in it with layman's knowledge, right? Of course, you got to do your homework. You got to define what what Miguel uh, mentioned earlier, but it's not it's not exclusive to just a handful of people with MBAs and with CFAs, like uh, 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 a normal employee. With a specific financial objective in mind, can 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 do investing, can do what you do. Yeah, I Go guess ahead. the other one is that on on the on the fees. I think people assume that like, well, if I can do it by myself, that's probably cheaper than paying somebody else to do mm-hmm. it, right? But it's it's a common misconception. Just because if you try to actively trade on your own, then um, you pay per transaction, right? You're paying the broker fee with the transactions mm-hmm. every time you move. And you may not realize it, but that is far, far higher in terms of uh in terms of a cost ratio relative to being invested in a fund where you get charged a fixed rate, a fixed management fee per annum, and where all the associated costs outside of the professional management and liquidity and all of that, but the actual trading costs are shared with every other investor in the fund. Yes. All right, that's great. So, um, we were speaking about uh, a while ago 
you, you need to you need to know your expectations when you're investing in something. And so if I'm someone who's wanting to invest in a fund, you know, it is because I feel like a lot of people right now, parang may pagka short term eh, gusto gain ka agad, kita ka agad. Yeah. What if you're investing in a fund? What type of expectations should you have? Should it be really be more on the long term side? Just so say. Um, minsan na didismayan eh kapag hindi ko makita kaagad they, they pull it out even though you know it hasn't mm. been matured yet so what's your thoughts on that? Elders. Yeah, sure. Um, the the one of the hardest things to do um, uh, in the equities market is timing. <laughs> That's also one of the questions the key questions that people ask or even when we're when we're being reviewed in our performance right? Uh, why didn't you sell this at the peak? Why didn't you buy this at the bottom? Right? Uh, <laughs> El forgot his crystal ball. Yeah, it's like what? Well, uh, I mean, uh, if we if we knew, then uh, we'd be much richer by now, right? So um, I think uh, having a long term perspective, uh, kind of like it 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 doesn't it doesn't completely mitigate the risk of that. Um, there there are stock stocks that have. Um, declined since their IPO, but it uh, but it somehow mitigates the, those troughs, right? And then you also have um, certain uh, cost averaging systems in place that were developed, right? Uh, that could work if you have a long term perspective, like the 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 dollar cost or peso cost averaging, right? You just 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 buying a fixed amount every month so that you just cost average. From uh in your investment horizon, that that's sort of like that doesn't really work if you, if your cost averaging if daily in like a week, that <laughs> you've barely moved and you've just like if in, with with like a three or five percent gain you've only spent it all in transaction fees. So, um, I think uh, the 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 longer your your investment horizon is, um, the more you position yourself for for success basically. Riding out the small cycles day in day out or week in week week out, um, but that's not to disparage what uh, day traders do, because they have a certain kind of they have a very specific objective, they have very specific systems in place that would work in that kind of uh, time horizon. That's not necessarily applicable to long term investors. Also, I think El gave a really good explanation of uh, the benefits of long term investing. Why definitely, even if you do have an allocation to short term. You should always be taking long. Uh, I guess me, I'll just add that this doesn't apply, I guess, to the point that El made about day trading. This is about people who are investing in funds with a short time horizon. My advice would just be make sure, reiterating my point earlier, make sure that the risk that you're taking for that with that capital is is appropriate relative to your time horizon. And I'll give you guys a personal example. Um, when the, when the mark, right before the equity market, the local equity market crashed last year. Um, so this is around mga Fed pa, no? Where are we coming from end of 2019, bro? 8,700 pa. 8,700, yeah. <laughs> That's a, we, around that. we were coming from 8,700, I think. And then by around Feb, I think we were at around 7,800. Mm-hmm. And this is before we really knew about COVID, right? This is just like, uh, people are still yeah. going on vacation, man. Like, our yeah. office is still like, inside, though, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and I had, I had a little bit of, of money, and I was like, this is, 
like a steal because our view was like above 9k at the time, right? By the end of yeah. 2020, above 9k with everything pre-COVID, the right? based on what we did. Now, I really believed in that. I really believed in it. But I knew that I needed this money back by June, right? So essentially, I had a four-month time horizon, Feb to June. Uh, because I knew that, and I knew that, you know, we believe the market's going to be higher, but who knows where it's going to be in June, and I absolutely need to take that money out, right? I put it in uh, one of uh, one of my funds, one of our corporate bond, our corporate bond fund, and our money market fund, and my and our special bond fund, just because I I had a better handle that the volatility would be you know more moderate, and I was taking some price risk, but not equity type risk, so I wasn't going to make a lot potentially, but I was safer on the downside because I only had four months, and then the market fell off a cliff, right? So imagine if I'd come in at seventy eight hundred. <laughs> and I got shaken out in March at like 4,100 or something. Or by June where, you know, we were still at around uh, barely, barely 60, 6,200. Yeah. But I didn't know, right? I believed. I believed we were going to be above 9K, man. It's just that because I knew that my time horizon didn't allow me to take a lot of risk, I didn't take that risk. That's, um, I mean... Speaking of that, um, one of my favorite uh, questions to ask when I, when I do these interviews, usually with individual traders, I like asking them, what's your most unforgettable trade? But for this one, I think the audience would be really interested to know what um, over maybe the past, in the past or right now, what are some of the best performing funds of Atram? If you guys could share that. Sure. Actually, I think... Um Shameless marketing plug. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I think somebody's gonna put them up on the screen right now. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, mine's first. All right. Um, so for the fixed income side, uh, we have the Atram Total Return Casabond Fund. Um, so this, this fund is actually, uh, incepted in 2014. So it's got a seven year track record. We act, uh, I didn't start the fund, but we did start the fund just as I had joined the firm. So at least I have, I'm as old as this fund in the firm. Uh, and I've had invo- involvement with it um, all the way from the beginning. So initially as just the dealer uh, and then the portfolio manager and now heading the, the team that runs it. And um, talking about w- how we've been, I guess, consistently successful over the period is um, the flexibility of the fund um, Offers. Uh, if you notice, it says total return, right? So I just want to take a second to explain what that means. Um, most fixed income funds, I think, are characterized by like three words that you're familiar with. Conservative, moderate, or long term, or, or, or growth, right? But all that means really is that it doesn't matter who's carrying the, the strategy. Conservative means that they don't invest in anything longer than three-year bonds, maybe. And moderate means that maybe they invest up to five, maybe some seven, ten-year bonds. And then long-term or aggressive means they'll invest in just the long stuff, which means that by definition, you're already taking a view on the market, right? Because um, those strategies are limited to like those specific universes. So a short, a conservative fund will always save you money in a bad market, but not make you as much money in a good one. And a long-term fund will, you know, always make you the most money in a good market, but completely wreck you in a bad market. And then the moderate somewhere in between. Total return means that we're unconstrained with respect to that fixed income. If it looks good, 
we go aggressive. If it looks bad, we dial the risk down. And so it, it, it relies a lot more on the management, uh, management team skill. But uh, fortunately, we've been able to uh, display a pretty good track record for it. Yeah, so uh, speaking of wrecking it, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, um, I think uh, the Alpha Opportunity Fund here, uh, we have we essentially have like four main equity strategies in Atra. Uh Alpha Op here is uh, in the most aggressive side of the spectrum. Um, and uh, I think uh, if you look at the, five, uh, the past five years of its performance, it's performed pretty well. Uh, in this list here, it's the only positive uh, return in the past five years. Look, if you looked at um, uh, its past year performance, it's up around 42% last time I checked. Year to date, it's up 17%, still the best performing. And I think, uh, like I said, it's, it's in the most aggressive side, right? Um, and I think uh, at, the, at, the, at the peak of the pandemic, it also swung wildly, right? And um, I, but uh, the systems that we have in place for Alpha Opportunity and for for the rest of our strategies um, allowed it to 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 bounce back really strong uh, once the market recovered. And um, I think, yeah, it's it's been. It, it, I think this is also our most flexible fund because of because of its strategy, right? Um, and one of our most bottom up also uh, in terms of strategy because. Uh, one main point of its uh, of its strategy is identifying future uh, index members, and so far it's identified two uh, in this year: Converge and in AC Energy. And yeah, uh, it's it's one of our best performers so far. Um, also, at uh, when Wilcon was added to the MSCI uh, IMI, it, it also identified that. So yeah, um, uh, in, in terms in terms of uh, risk appetite, it it might appeal. To those who have a, a, a hefty appetite for for risk. Yeah, great. So my question for the both of you, uh, in relation to this, uh, to the two slides, um, from a fund management standpoint, um, how are you or your team? How are you guys able to outperform um, the benchmark? Uh, El, since we're in your slide, go ahead, man. <laughs> sure, sure. How? How is really uh, the investment process that we have in place? Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's really deeply fundamental uh, fundamental analysis rooted. And um, it, with this strategy, it's it's identifying, especially with, with um, it, it dabbles in small to mid-cap companies. Uh, and those names tend to be undercovered relative to the large caps. Um, they tend to go under-noticed. And um, there's a lot of homework to be done, and but also there's a lot of of mispricing to be found in 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 these segments, right? And uh, as Miguel mentioned earlier, uh, this is the type of risks that we're willing to take on when we when we you know when we when we research these companies. So the returns that we also expect, the growth that we expect, is above market. So I think that's really that that that's the that's the um. Uh, essence of the strategy, basically looking for above above market growth. You see that say uh, you projected to grow twenty percent. You look for some for for set uh, for top two uh, second tier or thir- third tier names that could grow thirty forty percent, right? So yeah, yeah. For us, I think uh, very similar to what El said. It's it is based on the investment process and the system. But I guess trying to speak about it more broadly. Um, for fixed income locally, the corporate bond market is actually 
you know, it's bigger and bigger. It's the biggest it's ever been, but it's not exactly actively traded. And I don't even mean that from just a retail standpoint. I mean that from an institutional standpoint. Um, it's very much a buy and hold market for, for most still. Um, so when you talk about a fixed income strategy, generally speaking, there's a lot or bulk of it is still going to be government securities, right? Or Philippine government bonds. Um, which means that you're, now that you don't really have credit as a consideration, you're really moving on the back of interest rates, right? It's, it's your main mover. So, uh, our process allows you to kind of select one, like I'll mention value. Where's the value along the yield curve? Is it the two year, the three year, the five, the seven year, 10 year, 20 year, wherever? Given the view that we've got and where rates are right now, which of those is the best bet? Uh, but even within those like tenors, right, like three or five years, seven years, there are a lot of uh, competing securities because um, we don't have as many as uh, on the equity side where there's like uh, over 200 listed securities. But there are probably, there's around close to 70 outstanding government bonds, excluding T-bills. And of those 70, uh, around 30 or 30 plus of them make up the benchmark index. But of those 30-ish, only five, maybe 10, will trade on any period with any type of real liquidity. So it's really like a balancing act on the selection, but overlaid with, do we think interest rates are going up or down? And which bonds do we think are going to do uh, better relative to that? Because at the end of the day, the index is a purely market cap-weighted uh, one, right? So by definition, the Philippine bond index is is a high-risk index because most of the outstanding debt is longer-term in nature. So a big part of its composition is, is long-term debt, which is very susceptible to moves in interest rates. So if interest rates are going up like they've been going this year, your bond return is going to be negative. If it's going down, your bond return is going to be positive. This fund is still positive right now, though. Just wanted to say. Great. Yeah, super interesting. So... My next question, though, I'm really curious for this one. Uh, Renz, I think we can, we can go back to the three of us. Um, when when you're managing a fund professionally, do you um, primarily look at technicals? Do you primarily look at fundamentals? Is it a mix of both? Because if we're a lot of retail traders and a lot of traders in the community, ah, I thought EA, okay, na to. Sapat na to. Yung charts, yan lang kakausapin. That's all I need to look at. But from mm-hmm. a professional fund manager standpoint, what do you mostly look at? Well, in equities, it's really it's really fundamentals. Uh, our strategy, it's uh, not that we do away with technicals. Technicals is very important for us to get a pulse of the market. Um, if we have like a name that we want, but uh, it's kind of uh, either either trading at a topish price, we think, and we're looking for an entry. That's we when we consult our technicals, right? Um, I think the hard thing when you uh, when you solely rely on technicals is that you're at the market swim because that's what you're basically basically looking at, right? Um, you're looking at you're looking at the sentiment, you're looking at momentum. Um, being being fundamentally grounded allows you to ride out the troughs of uh, of stock price movements, and I think for for especially in our profession and in the in the scale that we hold. Because if we exit, if we if we if we were also just dictated by the market and we exit positions uh, at the at the same rate, we would move the market. So we need to be fundamentally rooted so that a ten percent drop doesn't really move us. 
um, a, a 20% drop uh, last year doesn't net, doesn't really sway our hand because we know that that uh, nothing's really fundamentally changed in the company. It's just the bro- it's just the movement of the broad market, and eventually in a recovery scenario, it's just going to go back to that, right? But that can also work for us in in the other way around. We if we know the, that the fundamental value of a company is already way lower than its current price, it allows us to take advantage of topish price movements. Um, I guess with us, it's like El said, we are mostly a fundamental kind of shop allowing us to take these longer term views. Um, for fixed income, I would say there's also more of a technical, but not maybe in the way that you're thinking, where it's really just looking at the charts and the price action uh, and, and looking at the, pat- at the chart patterns. I think when for fixed income, when I say technical, it's really more uh, historical spread analysis. And I, I know a lot of you guys are more equity oriented. So let me just give you a quick uh, idea of what that means. If the historical spread or the yield difference between a five year and a 10 year bond over the last 10 years, let's say is, is 200 basis points or 2%. And these aren't the real spreads. I'm just for illustration sake. <laughs> so given this example, a five, if a five year is at 2%, then a 10 year bond should be at 4%, right? So, if you use that as a baseline reference point, and today uh, you have a spread which actually says that the five-year, ten-year is something at 300. So if the five-year is at 2%, the ten-year is at 5%, then in, in theoretically, it could mean either that the five-year is expensive because it's, the yield is too low, or the ten-year is cheap because its yield is too high relative to historical. So that's just an example of what I mean when I refer to technicals or spread in the in the fixed income world. Um, not really charting necessarily, but really more on the the behavior of those spreads along the yield curve. Uh, but of course, all of it is still fundamental and event risk driven because at the end of the day, your main driver will typically be the underlying movement in interest rates and inflation. Great. So. I'd like to ask you guys, how, how could you different, differentiate uh, these two things? What's the biggest difference between um, professional fund management and retail trading? Because I feel like a lot of people don't really know right, what it's like inside the world of being an institutional level investor. So could you guys share that with us? I'm more scared to lose somebody else's money than my own money. <laughs> yeah. That's the biggest difference. That's the root of it all. Yeah. <laughs> That's the no, I mean, joking yeah. aside... Uh, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our clients to trust us with this money, right? And um, the parameters, the level of risk we're willing, that we're allowed to take, all of that is laid out in if you're invested in the funds, in the strategy of the fund, or if you're a direct uh, institutional account with us, the mandate that you have with us. Um, so we take it very seriously that we, that we adhere to those parameters, those limitations. So that's one thing, right? When it's your own money, uh, you have your own system, you can decide whether or not today I'm not going to follow mm-hmm. the system. That's never a good idea, by the way. Yeah. But you can make that decision. Uh, with us, we, we don't do that. We, we have, and we have the discipline to say these are the limitations, that we, the parameters that we have to work with. These are our objectives. Um, mm-hmm. and this is how we're going to manage it, right? Uh, everything in line with what we're supposed to do. Um, another, I guess, is, and I'll let El talk about the equity side a bit later. Speaking about fixed income, I don't think that there's really a big um, retail trading 
um, environment for fixed income. And it's, it's, it's don't hate the player, hate the game, hate the system. It's very difficult, right? It's much more difficult to invest in fixed income than equities right now. And I'm hoping that changes because you've got your, well, I, I think I can name them. You've got co-financial wealth tech, all these brokerages out there. And then maybe you guys have your own pro, uh, platform as well, right? Like where you're able to trade. Um, and that's equities, but for fixed income, it's so difficult to invest in fixed income. You gotta go to the bank, you gotta fill out all these forms, you, and the, and there's no transparency. Like you don't have any exchange where you can see the bid and the offer, where you can see the, where you can see the trades, right? You gotta go call your bank officer and then they're just gonna tell you their price, right? If you wanna see the other price, you gotta call the other banks and ask them, you know, do I have, yeah. and, and then you have to have an account with them. It's just such a pain in the ass to try and trade as a fixed income investor, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. there's no way to do it efficiently unless you're willing to invest in a fund. So Ed, may, may I interrupt before you sure. answer? I, I'm, I'm really, that, that was an interesting thing when, when you talked about, Sir Miguel, about fixed incomes. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's the case? I just want to you know, maybe point that out. I think it's sure. super interesting. Why do you think that's the case that's really harder for you know, retail investors to become fixed income traders? Um, well, I, I mentioned it's, it's systemic, right? I don't think it's a skill, uh, it's a skill deficit. I, I think anybody that le- has learned how to trade equities efficiently can certainly learn to trade the type of technicals I described earlier in, in the form of spreads and, and the like. It's really just the fixed income market as it is from a retail standpoint. It's so opaque that like, you don't have a you don't have an exchange where, like I said, where you see the bid offer, where you can put your order in, where you can, you, you don't have any of that. Um, I mean, yes, you have the exchange website where you see the trades, but you can't participate in that. You just see it. Uh, you have to, like I said, you have to call the banks and ask them what the price is. And then uh, even if you were getting a price, the, the level that you're getting, whether you're buying or selling, the bid offer you're getting, you're getting spread on, so much, so much. And I know, I know this because I used to work for the bank and I used to do that. So, <laughs> so I know, man, like if you're a retail investor, it's, it's hard. It's hard because you have no transparency. You have no other avenue. Um, it's not a skill deficit. It's really a systems thing. And I'm, I think we're starting to see incremental change towards that. I think the more RTDs or retail treasury bonds the government has, uh, comes out with, the more they're bringing interest to investors in the market. And if that interest kind of hits a critical mass, I think, then you will have private companies step in to create the type of platforms or brokerages, which you have in the equity space, right? Because why would you do it if nobody wants it, right? That's just <clears> expected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great. That's super interesting. Sorry for interrupting you. Um, no problem. No problem here. Yeah, I think uh, Miguel, uh, like at least on the company side, uh, already said it. Um, I think also for uh, for access, I think it's it's along the same lines as what Miguel said earlier. Um, for for equities, it's very important you have access to to management of the corporates, right? And it's really hard to do that with retail. Um, uh, if you're if you happen to be a retail uh, retail investor that doesn't really have that much. Um, uh, Assets under management, you don't really have the leverage. Technically, you can. You really can. Like call up the investor relations. It's there, there's a reason why it's in their websites. But 
you have the leverage to schedule a meeting. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> you I have a good chance. Know. Please take my call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much in AUM do you have? Um, 50K. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, so they might, uh, if, 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 but if a fund with like a billion in AUM calls them up and you're like, Hey, we want, we want to catch up. They, they, they take, uh, the time out of their schedules to, to accommodate you. I think that's one of the advantages of, uh, of being in a fund. Yeah, great. So I'm super curious because you, you guys kind of touched on it a while ago. Um, how was, you know, Akram, how was your team able to handle the, the crash in, the market crash back in March 2020? I mean, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was, it was watching BDO go from 140 to 80. Um, <laughs> in, in, in a span of days, right? And there's really nothing you can do because, uh, um, uh, the spread was crazy. The, the, the spreads in these, in these names are crazy. And you're, you're already looking at BDO, SMS, and Prime, right? So, and also, uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to be moving around the market with two billion in liquidity, in daily liquidity. <laughs> so, yeah, you gotta go back, uh, sad as it may sound, to your spreadsheets. Um, and at that point, at that point, nobody knows anything. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the, ne- in the next few weeks. Try as you may, right? Um, I think our approach before was that, uh, like, in, in the worst case scenario, so, uh, like, reviewing the past few crises, how bad did it go? What were the valuations then? Um, how, how high did bank NPLs go? How, how low did, um, property prices go? How how long did it take for the market to recover? Right, that's that's all we can do. Right? Look look at the blueprints of the past, and try to navigate it from there, and um, try to marry that with what we know of the companies thus far. Um, you, you, we we tried calling the companies too, and it, uh, there were a few of them who were like gracious enough to like answer calls and give us some crumbs, but we also couldn't hold it against the other companies that couldn't tell us anything, right? So and if they can't tell us anything. Why can we tell, uh, like, in what position can we have information advantage over the companies, that, the companies themselves, right? So it's, it, it was a really prudent kind of, um, approach to everything. Uh, valuing, valuing stuff at like crisis, crisis valuations, um, assigning large, um, uh, we call this bu- buffer discounts, especially for, uh, for, for property companies. Um, and for conglomerates, um, trying to identify the sectors that, that would be kind of resilient. It took time. It wasn't like the next day we were able to identify these companies right away. Um, because the, the, the market dipped, uh, broadly. Uh, there, there was not one name that was safe then. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on our part, actually, um, I mean, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the concept of correlated markets, right? And the classic correlation between equities, which is traditionally seen as a risk, risk on market, and fixed income or government securities, which is a, a haven or risk off market, is its opposite correlation, right? Um, meaning in this style of heightened uncertainty in the, in the economy was getting walloped because of COVID, everybody was, was selling equities like El said, right? Where's that money going to go? So fixed income had a hell of a year last year because everyone was scared. Um, the bond market had a double-digit return last year. 
Yeah, when the equities were double-digit <laughs> negative, and that's and that's directly correlated, man, because everyone's selling risk assets because we don't know what's going to happen. But one thing, and remember, I talked about interest rates, right? One thing is reasonably sure. What happens when you're in a recession? Is the central bank or our central banks globally more likely to raise interest rates or lower them? Mm-hmm. And everybody thought, okay, everybody, everyone that knew what they were doing saw that the BSP is probably going to cut rates lower, just like the Fed did, just like every other central bank that had the space to do it around the world. And because of that, bond yields rallied, and anybody that was invested in a in a bond portfolio uh, saw those gains. And you know, going back to the diversification benefits, dude, if you had some some money in a bond fund last year, at least you had a little bit of an offset to whatever you had in equities, right? Yeah. So, buti na lang, kahit if retail trader ka, wala kang access sa fixed income market, buti lang, pwede kumuha ng bond fund. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm super curious. So, what happened? Because um, the, the market rallied, right? Last year, fourth quarter, the, the market rallied. How, how did... With the equity side and maybe in the fixed income side, how, how did you guys um, manage through that time? For equities, I think the rally. Honestly, when we were looking at that rally, you're like, what? Uh, with what legs? <laughs> On what basis do we have vaccines? We didn't. Uh, we had lower number of cases, but so we're testing. Um, and that that was even more curious because we were approaching uh, the fourth quarter, the holiday season, where people were, would naturally gather. And it's like there is no way that this that, that this rally has legitimate legs, right? It was all optimism, fueled by optimism. And so, I mean, it's not that you know, it's not it's not that we were pessimistic about the market, but we just thought that uh, it would come down, that the that the rally would come down. It didn't have fundamental legs. We were waiting for clear signs. So we were looking at uh, specific metrics macroeconomic metrics, uh, sector-specific metrics, um, uh, where we could actually say that, okay, yeah, um, if at the very least, if it's not the inflection point, it's it's bottoming out. And with and um, we were very, when we were looking at companies before, we were looking at their balance sheets, uh, we were looking at their valuations, um, we, want, we tried to identify companies that had really strong balance sheets, um, we tried to uh, identify companies that were trading at huge discounts, um, and you know where 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 it's just a matter of time for these companies to just recover. And if you know you know if if these companies have large balance sheets, not only could they take care of their own existing operations, they could actually buy or be on on an acquisition mode, right? Like once once um, they see things uh, get better, start to get better. Yeah, on, on our side, the correlation actually held, right? Um, as equity markets started rallying, the rally in fixed income started to fizzle out. Yeah. So um, you you saw yields hit their lows in, in July. And then that's around the third quarter is when you started to see the equity market kind of building up a bit, right? And, and it, 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 it all kind of connected with each other, right? Because, uh, you know, there was a little bit more interaction. There was a little bit more openness in the economy gradually, but still more than it had been in the first half of the year. And because of that, it caused actually price pressures to start building up. And we were coming from such a low base of inflation at that point, right? Mm. So the markets, uh, the economy is opening up a bit more than it was. Inflation is adjusting higher from what was already the low. 
what's going to happen next? Of course, on the back of inflation adjusting higher, of course, on the back of people coming back into the equity market, people started selling their bonds, right? So interest rates were going up and your bond prices were going down. So the correlation kind of held in this case. Yeah. All right. So maybe to kind of wrap things up in the next couple of minutes, I have uh, maybe last two or three questions left. If, if you could get, if you guys could boil down successful investing into three factors, just three factors, what, what would those be? Mm. All right. I got an idea. Uh, because I kind of talked about this a bit kanina naman. <laughs> so, I'm gonna say, um, I'm gonna say, pro, uh, consistency, discipline, and, um, process. Uh, and if you wanna know really why, uh, if you wanna know the step by step by that, then watch the Investor Expo, because <laughs> I go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's more of the, more of the same as what Miguel said. Uh, it's very important that you have systems and process in place, and you stay consistent to that process. Um, uh, more often than not, um, it's really easy to confuse the the, uh, the the end result with the process. Uh, sometimes, sometimes uh, the wrong process could 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 very well end in a very in a very good result, and but then it's not replicable. What you want is replicability, right? Year in, year out, you're able to do the same thing. And, um, so, and you can somehow expect the results to, to, to just have some, some variance still within your expectations, right? And, and discipline. Discipline is very, very important in, in, in like sticking to your own process and not be swayed by, by, by the systems of others because it may not work for you. You see that? Oh, I didn't just make that stuff up, man. Yes. Yeah. Stuff, stuff that saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Solid. So, man, um, if you guys don't mind me asking, um, I think a lot of people might be interested in hearing this too. What, what's your outlook on, uh, maybe we can talk first to the equities and the fixed income market. What's your outlook, mm. um, yeah, for those two markets to, to end the year in, uh, in 2021? Mm. Okay, so first for the equities market, um, I think we had like a this this year was most more sobering than 2020, uh, just because of the hype that we had entering this year, right? Um, you mentioned the rally in the towards the end of the year, and then it was like really sobering to to go to go back to ECQ by mid March, not even a quarter, they didn't even let us finish the quarter with a bang, right? And I think that really set the expectations of, of everyone, uh, kind of like. Um, yeah, really sobered everybody, everybody up that lockdowns could be, um, a, a, a recurring thing. Um, of course, uh, of course the lockdowns are not the same anymore. You have, but it's really the, the label is, are just that, are just labels. You just have to read through what's allowed and what's not and set your expectations. That's really, that it's, it's also been messing us up. It's not just the retail, it's also the, the NCs. Um, for, for this year, uh, expect so there, there's been a lot of companies that have been able to adapt uh, to the current environment. Uh, they've been able to bolster their operations. For example, for restaurants, um, they've been trying to improve their 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 online stores and their delivery systems. Right? There are even some some uh, companies that that completely shifted to that kind of model, and um, it may or it, it may not be down to the SMEs 
but certainly you you see some uh, one one of the one of the nice things that I've been seeing lately are ano, um neighbor neighborhood coffee shops. You know those those people selling coffee shops uh, just just out on the street and like on like a mobile ano on a mobile cart. It's very it's very good. Uh, that's that's just one example of like uh, if 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 SMEs can do that in that scale, certainly Philippine companies have been able to to do something also w- with their own companies. And so um, but there 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 are some, especially in the tourism side, aviation side that that um that really just have to wait for all of this to be over. And um, yeah, I, I mean, for the end of the year, we expect it to say to be some somewhere between 70-76. It's not that much higher than uh, the 7,000 we ended with in 2020. Um, unfortunately, the lockdowns, the recurring lockdowns, uh, keeps pushing back the recovery scenario that we that we're picturing. Um, but I think we take comfort in the fact that as long as we don't see permanent impairment. And that's always been um, when we when we think about recovery, we have to make sure that we're not permanently impaired yet, right? Uh, so in that, we're looking at several macroeconomic metrics, um, uh, labor unemployment, um, the the public debt to GDP, where interest rates are. But I think we're in a very completely different environment than what we saw back in 2008, 2009, and the AFC, um, and that allows us some leeway. Hopefully. We put it to good use, right? Uh, whether or not the governments put it to good use, let's leave it up to you. That's an entirely different debate. Um, but but the companies themselves, uh, they're they're in pretty good shape. Uh, um, oh, 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 of course, I'm speaking generally. Uh, so as long as we don't see permanent impairment in these companies, then we can look forward to a recovery. And I think uh, just something that we have to um, I think shift our perspective in because we always we're all, we're we're still picturing a 2019 sort of normal and the uh, and the recovery that we may be looking at is completely different, right? Um, banks may not look like uh, the same way as before. Uh, there are already banks that are shifting their strategies and there are already uh, disruptors in the space. We've seen Gcash, right, and its eventual effect on globe. Uh, we've seen some uh, some uh, e-commerce disruptors and how it affect, uh, how it affected the mall operators and retailers, how they approach their brick and mortar expansion or even their current branches, right? So it, may, it, it, it will not look like exactly like 2019, right? So I think that's something that, that, um, investors have to realize. Yeah. Uh, on our part, I think, uh, I mentioned already, right? It's been a challenging environment this year for, for fixed income. Um, inflation shot up earlier in the year uh, over the first quarter. From that point, rates kind of moved lower with inflation. And then recently, we had another spike higher in inflation, right? So that's the fundamental picture, that inflation is probably going to be uh, higher over the next couple of months, but we do think that it's going to be still below 5% by the end of the year and maybe closer to 4 4.5%. Um but the, the more technical factors, I think, are are challenging as well. Uh, so there's three main ones. I'll go over them really quickly. First is um, U.S. yields or U.S. bond yields are going higher. We talked about uh, correlated markets earlier. Um, there's not always a strong impact uh, or diff- strong impact on what 
global rates are going to local. But definitely, if global rates are going higher, there's some sort of pressure on local rates to go higher as well. And we definitely think uh, global bond yields are going up. And that will also have a knock-on effect on the, on the dollar peso. We think the dollar peso is going to, uh, the dollar is going to appreciate against the peso further from what we've seen. And that's going to be uh, kind of negative in the short term for, for bonds here. Um, the second one is technical supply. There's a lot of supply coming in still. The Treasury has been doing a great job kind of um, issuing debt. Um, but it looks like they're going to keep on with the current kind of schedule for a while. That means there's a lot, a lot of money um, that's going to be taken out of the market, a lot more issuances. So another reason for yields to maybe go up from here. And then the final is still technical. It's the BSP. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, the BSP actually engaged in open market operations or bond buyback operations last year at the height of the pandemic, starting around um, April, I think, March, April. Uh, that's essentially what the Fed, one of the things the U.S. Fed has been doing. So every time you read about QE, that's one of the things they need, that the U.S. Fed has been stepping into the bond market and buying yields so that yields, buying bonds so that yields don't shoot up too high, so that investors, when they want to sell, have someone to sell to instead of panicking and hitting the market up, right? Um, so the BSP has been doing that uh, initially quite aggressively, and then as the market calmed down, uh, scaling out of it more and more, and so now it's just, you know, it's it's around there, but not so aggressive. And recent comments have really been that uh, they may scale back that activity further. So taken by themselves, all three of those points, not not super negative, right? But uh, in the absence of any really positive catalyst, three semi-negative uh, factors, I think, building up will cause rates to adjust higher for the, for the last few months of the year. But that makes it a very good opportunity to come in over the next few months, I think, because it might set us up for what may potentially be a rally uh, at the beginning of next year. Yeah. All right. Before I let you guys go, Makai Besa, if you learned a lot, please comment down below. Thank you, Sir Miguel and Sir El. But, mga boss, uh, before you go, if there's anyone right in the audience maybe is interested in investing in a fund, interested with what's happening in Atram, who has some questions, uh, what they want to invest, uh, where, where can they go? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, technology is the future, man. We're all over the net. Uh, I think we've got like a, even an IG. We definitely have a Facebook. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we even have a YouTube channel. And please visit our website, uh, www. We also have a, we also have a Viber community, right? That's we right. <laughs> we just launched it, the Viber community. So for, if you have any like, uh, immediate questions, you can just fire it up there. Good. Uh, great. So again, guys. Hopefully you learned a lot. This is the first type of interview I did where it wasn't just fo- um, focusing about trading, now focusing about funds. And if you guys want me to interview anyone in the future, just comment it down below. And again, Sir Miguel, Sir El, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And to everyone, we'll see you guys in the next episode of Deep Pockets. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Paolo. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thank you for listening to the Deep Pockets by Investa podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.